0: Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we speak with writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me this week is Liam O'Donnell. Now, Liam is the mastermind behind the Skyline series, having co-written and produced the original Skyline for the Strauss brothers before writing and directing its first sequel, 2017's Beyond Skyline, and then writing and directing Skyline's last year. Now, I wanted to cover Beyond Skyline because to me it's one of the great modern cult movies. It's a total face melter and the product of just DIY, uh, get-her-done, meat-and-potatoes kind of action filmmaking. Liam, you know, kind of delves into the production history of the movie with us here, as well as providing us with his own secret handshake movie, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Now, just to let you know, this is actually the first of two conversations that we had with Liam, because when I contacted him for the interview, he was actually in the middle of editing Skylines and putting up the finishing visual effects touches on the second sequel, which came out last December. So we have another full-fledged conversation coming at you in a couple days. But first, this is Liam O'Donnell on Beyond Skyline. How are you doing? How are you holding up uh, throughout the pandemic?
1: It's been interesting. Uh, I've got a lot of kids and just added another one last week. Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Trent O'Donnell, uh, welcome into the world and then... So I've got extra family here to help take out, uh, take care of everything, and uh, and then yeah, the VFX are still coming in every day. We've been using this uh, piece of software called FrameIO, which I don't I don't know how people how you could do it without it. It's it's just basically kind of a a daily system where I can make notes on each shot per frame and tag the artists and stuff. So that that's been super helpful. You know, obviously the technology that we have right now is makes makes the job easy, but it's kind of 24/7. Like right right when I was sitting down, I just get a text from an artist being like, "Is that hologram shut off in that shot?" And I have to. <laughs> if I don't answer him right away, he's gonna go like you know drink a beer and watch TV. So I'm like, I gotta I gotta get it to him, or he's not gonna finish the shot tonight. <laughs> uh, so, so you're kind of on call
0: 24/7. So when did you? Uh, I guess to kind of jump right into the the interview part of it when did you shoot Skylines like that's the, sh- the title right
1: Yeah yeah so uh we shot Skylines in May it's end of May through July 2019 Oh wow and yeah it was it was it was a pretty uh awesome shoot we ended up um filming at uh, the studio in lithuania where they filmed a lot of chernobyl um (laughs) which is which i hadn't seen chernobyl until this summer i just hadn't had time and i didn't feel like being super bummed out uh so i finally did watch it and i was like oh yeah we're we're, you'll if you see the two you'll notice hallways and we inherited a couple of um you know tents for our uh our our post-apocalyptic village and stuff like that but it was uh, it was this kind of unique situation where they have this uh, really great newer stage and a really nice outdoor um, backlot that we were able to to use a ton. And we were supposed to do more locations. We were supposed to go down to um, Grand Canaria for a few days, and uh, it was just really difficult like um, to even get fake guns into that country. <laughs> um, so. We ended up using more of our stages and and green screen, and uh, which was good because it's an alien planet, so we're able to really kind of control the environment and make sure everything's going to match uh, and look like a. It's got a blue sun and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a different experience uh, on a lot of different levels than the second one. But um, yeah, I'm I'm super stoked. It's it's coming out in December this year.
0: Wow. Okay. How uh, So I guess my my main question is is because like there's Skyline and then there's which you co-wrote and you worked on a few capacities on, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, I produced um it was it, yeah, I I would I'll let you finish your question, but I also script supervised, which I'd never done. It was just one of those all hands on deck type of movies.
0: Yeah, that that's what it seemed like Um, even watching it, but how did it go from essentially you uh, working, you know, co-writing script supervising to essentially having the torch passed to you to where like, because beyond, beyond Skyline is like, that's you, you're writing, you're directing. And then now you're making the second sequel Skylines. Like how does, how how did that happen? How did it all of a sudden become like your baby?
1: Uh, it's very interesting. I, I kind of have to. It's a long answer, I think, if I were to go through it. Um, you know, the first movie is is such a strange story. Uh, that's my dog Crom. Uh, that he'll probably be barking a few times just to get used I'm, to him.
0: I'm kind yeah. of in love with uh, the fact that your dog's name is Crom, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he's and he's like a little uh, poodle mix because I'm allergic to big dogs, so he doesn't really look the part. But he he still doesn't listen like Crom, so that's. It's <laughs> his consistency. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first movie was, was like you said, it was an all-hands-on-deck um, shot for, you know, under a million dollars. But they poured a ton into the VFX because, you know, the directors and producers, the uh, brother Strauss, owned uh, the visual effects company Hydraulics. And they kind of put all of their um, R&D into this movie. And I think... The real weird thing about that movie, the unique circumstance, was that Relativity bought it, and they just like put a ton of money in the P&A behind it. I don't know if any other studio probably would have, or if they had, it would have been probably a more limited release, or like, hey, let's do, you know, try to do uh, Toronto After Dark or something like that, you know, try or or TIFF Midnight Madness, like let's try to roll this thing out. Um, or maybe Blumhouse w- would have known exactly how to release it, but because they, uh, Relativity, Bought, it, they like put a ton of P and A in it, and they they tried to really sell it as this Independence Day, independent Independence Day, I guess. And um, you know that money ended up creating you know this big worldwide box office off of it, but it it obviously fell short of expectations domestically, and you know took a critical drubbing because I think it, he he was kind of selling it as something that it wasn't. Um, and so, but because they did put that money in, it just left, you know, a market where we would try other projects and people would always ask, what about Skyline 2? Because it made like a ton of money in Russia, a ton of money in China. It did really well in, in all these different markets that are kind of hard to penetrate into, right? Um, so... Which if,
0: is uh, sort of ironic in a weird way, because like... That's where these major blockbusters now target almost primarily right uh, we're like, and that that enabled you to make your movie,
1: yeah. I think we made like almost ten million dollars in Russian box office. And then, like, the darkest hour came out afterwards, which was set in Russia, and it didn't make as much. It was just something about the timing of it. I think, you know, we're like the first alien movie after District Nine, and everyone was really hungry for that vibe at the time. So I think it, it was just well positioned in a lot of those markets. And, uh, I think it plays better in another language to be honest. with yeah, you, I think sometimes movies like that, like, uh, you know, it, it, it probably, it probably plays to its visual strengths. Um, so I, I it had a really great score, had really nice visuals. Um, and I think that, that probably was to its favor, uh, and so yeah, because I think the critical drubbing and everything, it left uh, a bad taste in uh, a lot of people's mouths. But I still kind of just owned it. I guess from everybody involved, I was like, well, you know, it's our, it's my baby, win, lose or draw. Um, and I think it was something that we had, we had. There was a lot of excitement before it came out. So they asked to write a sequel treatment, you know, back in 2010. Crazy enough, we actually met um with an actor to play mark because we were going to do like a mark corley setup in the first skyline we're going to do a shot of them going into the subway um because um i'm 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 looking the actor up because i'm i'm blanking you can cut this part out because i should know his (laughs) name (laughs) i should know his name um okay so so yeah we when we were in post-production we were we wrote this kind of crazy treatment for the sequel, which um, was still fairly similar to what the second movie ended up being, except it was a lot more time on the ship, and then they crashed in New York at the end. So it was an American movie, and we in the characters of Jared and Elaine were much more front and center. But we still had this whole Mark and Trent father-son story. And uh, I, I really latched on to the subway as like a great way in on onto the movie. And so we actually met with Josh Holloway uh, to talk about doing like a little cameo and then talk about filming uh, the sequel. And he was super cool and and game for it. But it just was like totally impractical. We had like a month left before the movie came out and we ended up not getting that done, which is just a, an interesting sort of what if. Um, so anyways, then when the movie came out and like I said, probably left a bad taste in some people's mouths, uh, it kind of, the, the appetite for the sequel went away for a year or two. Um, we would kind of talk about it and then it was around 2013, it started playing on TV again. It started playing on, uh, like Spike TV and the sci-fi channel and I watched it when it first came out and kind of did a tweet along with people and I was just like. Fuck, I, I would kill to make a sequel to this. You know, I really, it really kind of was like, and I just saw, I just saw that the potential that was there. And we've been struggling for three years to get other projects made. So I really kind of threw myself in from that point on and it's, leveraged. Sorry. It's sort
0: of wild that you bring up that it was playing on cable because I, I swear I saw it on more than one TV on like mute in a bar, like during that <laughs> time, you know? It was just like one of those things where like there would be a you know a random bar I would be hanging out in in like Philly and like they would just have it on and then they would have like a basketball game on next to it and you're like "Eh, this is a strange juxtaposition.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, we we actually had because we're at Relativity, we had one of those early Netflix streaming deals, so it had this like three year window of Netflix from 2000. 11 maybe maybe it was two years to 2013 so it it went on streaming early in that time when it wasn't you know super pervasive and it skipped the hbo window and they paid more it was kind of the first time they did that and then so then when we got onto the secondary thing like spike and and sci-fi channel it was kind of like seeing it again for the first time and i'd had enough uh time between the movies and I, I just kind of it was like I looked kind of dusted off the treatment and was like how, how do we make this play and then you know we, we were in the midst of developing this other movie and it uh it fell apart and I had this other script um that was uh, gaining a lot of interest but uh for the brothers to direct but it had like like they the studios or the buyers that wanted it wanted like an a-level writer And so it was kind of a little bit of a political maneuver where I was like, uh, hey, I'll give you guys that project. You can go hire, you know, an A-list guy to write it and and get that made. And then I'll spend the next, you know, couple months writing Skyline 2 if I can direct it. And they agreed that, you know, I think they they kind of – it made sense for everyone at the time. And so then I I went ahead and – and wrote the first draft and then kind of with Frank in mind at that point, um, I had seen, uh, the gray and was like totally all in on, on him for Mark. Yeah. Uh,
0: that'd be my next question is, is Frank Grillo is such, uh, a fantastic casting choice, especially in that time period, because it's right around the time where he made uh, Wheelman too. Um, because, and so he was becoming this, uh, uh, almost like i don't want to say dtv like stud but like because <laughs> he had that he, he had but i mean you know he, so where, he, was, where, he was all of this like genre stuff to where like you had Wheelman, you had warrior you had uh which warrior is like a masterpiece uh, yeah
1: it was really for me it was warrior in the gray because that's like 2010 2011 right and yeah. so that where that was when that guy and then even end of watch in I think 2013, I was like, this guy just keeps popping up in movies and he's always the most real person in the movie. Yeah. You know, and like Warrior, like you said, it's a masterpiece. You've got, you know, three other like Oscar level actors, and I think Grillo's the best performance in the movie. Um yeah. so that that really kind of popped for me. But the year that that we, you know, got him and filmed was actually two thousand fourteen. This Beyond Skyline is like a two and a half year odys- odyssey. Oh wow! So we got him, and and so it's interesting because that year, you know, I take my wife to see Winter Soldier. I'm like, ah, oh, there's the guy, man. He's he's kind of blowing up. Purge Anarchy comes out. It makes like 75 million domestic. I'm like, ah, oh, we missed him. You know, there's no way I'm going to be able to get him now. And it it just so happened, you know, that and I even had to fight to like, hey, I want to go to him first because. You know, he was he was on the list for foreign sales. The casting director that we had came back and was like, I just I just pictured Frank Grillo in this. And I was like, oh, well, that's who I wrote it for. That's great. So I was able to get everybody on board to go to him first. And I, I kind of just wrote the super intense letter about, uh, you know, how he really reminded me of my best friend's dad, who was a cop growing up and was kind of, you know, a hard ass. But uh, you could tell he cared a lot. And, you know, he he had a heavy burden. And so, you know, we kind of connected on that on that level, and it he was like, this is this is in my wheelhouse, and uh, we did a Skype and we talked about the movie, and I, you know, he was like, I, you know, I know you're gonna be able to do all the effects, but there's this, and he had those type of concerns, and I, I just was like, I, I really don't give a fuck about the visual effects, like I've got these guys to do that, like I, I I'm hiring you for for the acting, like that's what that's what I need the, the most help in is. And it was one of the reasons why deliberately as like a first timer, I was like, I just want a really great veteran actor. I don't want to do a movie that's like teenagers or like a 20 something that I'm trying to rest, you know, everything on the shoulders of. And so it was kind of a deliberate thought of like, if if I can hire this, you know, awesome older actor, I, I, I'm probably going to learn how to do this better uh, than if I, you know, hire someone who's kind of in the same boat as me.
0: Sure. Uh, I, I'm going to have a follow-up question down the line because th- there, there's another decision that you made casting-wise that I think almost is counterintuitive to what you just said um, in a very special way, uh, but uh, what oh, I love I'm, about...
1: I'm interested. I'm interested to hear well, that.
0: Then. We'll, we'll get to it, but it's uh, I think what's interesting about Grillo's character is that your movie is one of the few that we get almost like the entire spectrum of Frank Grillo in there and that, you know, we have the concerned cop, you have the the relationship stuff, you have, you know, his, you know, he's boozy, he's doing all this. And then, you know, the the end of the world scenario that happens, but then you get the full blown like uh, action hero, like Frank Grillo to especially by the end when he's like picking out weapons and even making like almost like not Schwarzenegger-esque one-liners but like he picks that machete up at the one point and it was the part that made me chuckle the most revisiting the movie last night is where he goes what is this too big almost like (laughs) overcompensating for something and it's like I don't know it's I really felt like you utilized him in a way that uh he hadn't been yet which I I I appreciated because it's it's a gripe that i have um with a lot of movies uh, because i i'm perfect example is that i love scott adkins right. um, i think he's one of the i think he's like our jean-claude van damme right now uh outside of uh the fighters that you actually utilize in, in your movie i think he's he's one of the best on-screen kind of martial artists working today no doubt um, but no big budget production has figured out how to use him yet. Like, you know, he shows up in, like, Doctor Strange. Or even like a I can't man. even
1: give him a line. I know. It's, it's yeah. crazy.
0: And it's just, it's weird. But anyway, and that's enough of me rambling. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the more of a compliment to you because, like, it's one of the movies that I watched. And I was like, this guy gets the inherent appeal of Frank Grillo. And like what's there and what, what, what can be on screen with him.
1: Well, thank you. Um, obviously, you know, the, 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 it's all Frank, but there it's funny you said Schwarzenegger because I would literally talk about Schwarzenegger on set and he's like, Oh, give me a fucking break. You know, like, like, cause you know, you, you got to think generationally, you know, I'm 38. So like Schwarzenegger is like a God to me. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, Frank's 20 years older than me. I mean, uh, you know, in his early 50s, it's like Schwarzenegger's not the same thing to a, to a uh, an actor like that. So I'd be like, oh, you know, like when you pick up this shotgun and you're coming in, it's like fucking T2, and I'm tired. <laughs> and he's like, give me, a, you know, rolling his eyes at me.
0: But, yeah, uh, but more like McQueen or
1: something. Yeah, oh, exa- exactly. He wants Eastwood, McQueen. Um, but it would it, it's just funny that you you kind of picked up on on the things that I I was definitely on, in my mind because he does have like just a, you know, a, a kind of a, almost a skull similar to, to, uh, Schwarzenegger. It's, it's kind of the, the bone structure, right? So sure. like when, when you see that like super symmetrical bone structure holding a shotgun with a leather jacket, I think it kind of like just pops into your head uh, a little bit. So I couldn't help it to mention it a few times on set.
0: Uh, but to get to the counterintuitive part of it, um, which I was kind of leading down this path anyway, is that so you have Frank Grillo, you have this seasoned character actor uh, kind of giving it his all here, but then you introduce two uh, international sensations in The Raid Guys. Um, and, uh, you know, you have eco It's Yue? Is that how you say his name? I always feel like a fool because I, I, I can't pronounce I- foreign names
1: well I wise how. I, okay um but I might be wrong too and I've just been saying it wrong to his face so that's even more humiliating
0: yeah. and then you have mad, you have mad dog too in your movie
1: so it's, Yayan. Yayan, yeah 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 yeah
0: so I gotta ask I mean what you know you you have this guy is you even said you, that you're kind of resting and 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 almost using Gorilla as sort of a safety net to help you as a, you know, uh, a novice director, you know, Mm -hmm. at least all of this uh, experience to kind of guide you. But then you're bringing in these two dudes who are like just bursting onto the scene um, and like changing the way that martial arts are even filmed uh, with the raid movies and stuff. And I, I just had to pick your brain about what was it like to shoot, fight scenes with them because i mean you you get it right uh um,
1: yeah yeah i mean for, like to 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 put you in my shoes then it's like you know that uh, the the first raid was it's funny because i think it was um 2011 like the same year i saw the gray so it's like a lot of this stuff was formed around the same time in my head but you know i like like every other um you know, action fan. When I saw that, it was so exciting, and and from a couple of different levels, like, um, even the score was just felt different. You know, every editing, everything just kind of like just popped. And I loved Mad Dog. I thought he was like, it, it was such an interesting decision to have this smaller guy and and the two, you know, brothers team up to go against him as the two on one, and that be the climax. It still kind of made. Uh, Mad Dog, just kind of legendary in that movie. So, um, so yeah, to, to, to then flash forward in 2014, I go to a lo- location scout in uh, Indonesia and because, you know, I had written it for Laos. My wife is from Laos, so there was a couple of ideas that were percolating. And like I said, the movie did really well over in Russia and Asia, so there was pressure to kind of set it over there. There was pressure, to be honest with you, to set it in China, but I I thought that was going to be a problem because it's post-apocalyptic. So not to get too into it, but like once you go down that road, they'd be like, "Wait, so the Chinese government lost to the aliens?" And I was like, "I just don't think we want to go here. Let's 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 not, you know, let let's not entertain that." And so um, I really kind of uh, was able to think about like, "Oh, you know, like uh, the." Vietnam War, tunnel warfare, it would kind of make sense that, that people that, you know, had that sort of base, um, you know, would have a leg up in this situation. Because we've really set up from the subway tunnels and from their whole device of the light that, you know, being underground and being hidden from the surface is is kind of your, your best initial line of defense. So that was like the seed of that idea. And um, and so then we're like, okay, we're location scouting in Indonesia, and it was the first dinner I had with um, uh, Mike Willon, who's the uh, owner of Infinite Studios, which has a, a stage in Singapore and Indonesia. And he actually directed um, Buffalo Boys um, a year or so ago. He's okay. a good friend of mine. But he would—they kind of brought it up like, "Oh, you know, you you, got, you guys should talk to the Red Boys. You know, like they they have these kind of uh, funny, interesting accents." Um, and uh, and. You know, Matthew Chaus, uh, my producing partner, and I were just kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, could that actually happen? And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll call them. Like, they're around. And uh, so we basically got in contact with um, Maya, um, Gareth's wife, who was their manager at the time. And we, we sent her everything and then kind of said like, oh, we're going to be in Jakarta next week. Do you want to get lunch? And th- she said yes. And then, of course, we bought tickets to Jakarta. Uh, so we were like just uh, once we found that it was like a possibility we pursued it uh extremely aggressively and uh and then you know it was like i think a month or so later i'm i'm meeting them at the airport and we're uh, in jojakarta kind of taking a bus up into the mountains and we go up to this rice paddy and i described to them the first fight and like Yayan and Eko just take their shoes off in the middle of the rice paddy and start fighting each other like they they had like a very short conversation to then start it's almost like a pro wrestling thing where they could just talk a very short thing and they start going back and forth and and laid out that whole frank in eco fight you know pretty much you know a, a really decent first draft and then they turned and looked at me and I was like why do I even have a, like a decision here you know like I just felt <laughs> I was like yeah it's the best whatever you guys want to do like I, I I was so in awe of the of the situation it was such a, a sort of pinch myself thing and it really you know helped just get everybody really enthusiastic even you know because Frank at that time was detached to an earlier version of the Raid remake that I think was at Screen Gems with like um, Patrick Hughes. Was uh, so, that, like Joe Carnahan was going to make. Or, no, that's, that's after there's like, been three. After? yeah. So okay. this is like back in 2014, they were going to do one right away and it was going to be at, at Sony Screen Gems. And so Frank was already very familiar with the Raid. And, um, and so he was so pumped uh, when we landed them. Cause I think, you know, it's like this sequel to Skyline. It had that cloud hanging over it. So getting them was this huge get that kind of you know gave us our bonafides, or our, in a in a big way, and like told people that this is going to be totally different.
0: Yeah, there's and not to keep kind of bringing that the whole like cloud thing up as you just put it, but yeah, you you are making a sequel to a movie that was kind of I don't want to say reviled, but...
1: <laughs> it, it wasn't loved. Let's it say that. Yeah, it wasn't anybody's favorite. Let's no, put it it, well, uh, That okay, but that's the weird thing, because now I'll get uh, on my the Facebook page, they'll be like, you should go back to the style of the first movie. Because I think if some kids see that movie at like 10 years old, they might think it's awesome because... You know, it's got this really weird ending that they probably haven't seen before. So it's all about like when you see movies, right? If it's the first time you've seen a movie where the good guys don't win at the end and the aliens win, you're probably like, whoa, I can't believe they did that. And but if you're you know, if it's so and then then you see Beyond Skyline and you're like, oh, they, they just made the aliens beatable and they're not taking it as serious. I don't like this. So it's just interesting. You can never please everybody. But uh, I, I think it's kind of funny um, when, I, when I see those reactions. I'm like, where were you guys 10 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> I really could have used that love back then. <laughs>
0: but it's uh, – I, I do kind of like that um, – it's one of the things that I love about your movie is that you write it uh, in a way that feels like you're never going to make another movie again.
1: Uh, that's exactly um, how I, I felt. And I, yeah. I was very close to probably never making a movie again. Uh, we could get into that a little later. But uh, yeah,
0: but that's the thing is that you – that style or I guess – I don't want to call it desperation but almost that like just throwing ideas at the wall and seeing if they stick. It almost translates into – or it doesn't almost. It does translate into almost like an escalation Um, in the movie to where you're just like, what if it starts as a cop thriller and then it becomes a disaster movie and then they're sucked up into space and then they're in fucking Vietnam and then there's martial arts and then there's Kaiju. And it's just like, yeah, I just want whatever this guy like is smoking at the moment because (laughs) I'm I'm on board.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was sort of, the, you know, the last thing that happened in the movie was the, – the last reshoot was the, the wraparound. Um, and so we did a test screening. We finished a version of the movie at the end of uh, 2016, and we did a screening, and a lot of people – there was just – it just kind of ended where right now the movie ends where Frank and everybody kind of walk off into the sunset. So it didn't have the wraparound with um, Lindsay Morgan okay. as the adult Rose. So. It the the main question was just sort of like wait it's a sequel but you didn't set up another movie uh, so why what's up with that and I I was like well I felt the first movie just went too hard on a kind of a cliffhanger ending so I just kind of was like if this let's just end it and say you know happy ending they walk off into the sunset people didn't like that, (laughs) like reviled that. And then they, they were just like, what the hell is going on with this little girl? Like you, you need to explain the rules more. Everyone was very concerned about her well being that she was going to die like the next week when they walked off into the sunset. So I had to kind of, uh, come up with this, this whole sort of wraparound to let you know that she was going to grow up and be okay and be the John Connor of our universe. So I, um, so then then when I felt like I was kind of being forced to do that before I was like if if they if they're going to we're going to do a reshoot and we're going to have to do this I'm going to I'm going to fucking do a Star Wars scene to end the movie just so that we have the proper like you said escalation where like the last shot of the movie is just spaceships exploding into the screen and people being like all right the guy the guy went for it Yeah uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I felt like even, you know, whatever the hurdle was, I was going to try to keep um, just kind of outdoing whatever happened before it.
0: Okay. It's funny that you bring up uh, Star Wars, too, because I think you – it's funny because you always read about the old uh, stories about when Lucas was developing Star Wars um, and how it was originally, like, his Vietnam allegory, you know? Um, But – you made a, a movie about the end of the world that goes to Laos and even deals with like, you know, eco has the one line where he's basically where he like laughs about the apocalypse. He goes apocalypse. We survived the American bombs. And that's, you know, what led to essentially their underground tunnels and the, the, the weapon stockpiles and everything. And um, did you, see it as a vietnam movie because you know there's also you all you also bring up cameron a lot with terminator 2 and stuff and like he always talks about uh aliens in terms of that being his vietnam movie so it it always felt like beyond skyline was in that lineage to me in a strange way
1: well i mean i I take that as the highest compliment but I do remember, I'm not going to pretend that I'm so cool that I don't remember reading that in your review and being like super pumped that you picked up on that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, like I said, I mean, there, there's the, the bit of the personal experience of like, um, you know, like my wife was born in Laos and you just sure. kind of think about you, you look at your children and you're like, would these children exist without the Vietnam war? It's kind of a weird thing to think about, but Probably not, right? She probably wouldn't right. be here, and so it, it just made me. It was just on my mind, I guess, at the time a lot, and so uh, when I started, you know, doing research into it and thinking about setting it there, and then you come up across very simple term, but it, it's just that they call it the American War, and you know, you grow up in America, and it's the Vietnam War, and <laughs> so that was what the line with Ico, He says the, you know, the American Apocalypse, and I just thought that was. Uh, such an interesting you know idea that yeah that adversity was going to set them up better than us because America's kind of pretty much been untested um and so that that was sort of something that was just kind of on my mind and and I and I I think Cameron like looms large for me uh, on these movies and I, I think even more so on part three as it's a space marines movie um so I think that's kind of always just in my DNA as, as the the movies that kind of, you know, I, I grew up watching the most. And, and you know, I think Terminator 2 was the one that was like, oh, I, I really want to do this when I saw the behind the scenes. It was really when he reached into the the molten lava, Cameron, like on this behind the scenes thing and just like squished it. And it was warm bathwater that I was like, holy shit, uh, I, yeah. I, I want to go on set. Like I just that that to me was was like. It, it just kind of, you know, ripped open the world a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I it's definitely it's definitely a mix of 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 the cinematic, you know, inspirations and then the personal experiences of, of hearing about, um, you know, my father in law and, and mother in law's experience and during that war and then and then coming to America and and it's definitely not like the most authentic, loudest movie. You know, obviously we we filmed in Indonesia, um, didn't ha- have access to uh, as as many uh, low Asian actors as I would have liked, but it definitely came from a sincere uh, and honest place for me.
0: Yeah, well, and it's I think it's also interesting too is that you, you know you said you're 38, uh, I'm the same age as you and. I also wondered if like the pop, it's a, it's a strange line of thinking and not to get too deep or like.
1: Let's do it. Let's do it.
0: Ridiculous or anything. But I've always wondered if like the pop cinema that we experienced as nineties kids, essentially, you know, stuff like, especially, you know, movies from guys like Oliver Stone um, and then some of the cultier movies that you could kind of dig up, especially at the video store. Like last week's title was uh Cutter's Way, which to me was always one of these strange, unsung uh films that that reckoned with what it meant to live in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, especially for, you know, Jeff Bridges and uh, John Hurd's character. But I haven't I,
1: seen it. I gotta see that. That sounds um, great.
0: Oh man, it's terrific! It's one of it's the most depressing L.A. neo noir that's ever existed. Um, you won't be happy afterwards. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you'll you'll be glad that you saw it, but you're gonna have to shake it off. Uh, okay. But
1: uh, but yeah, I mean, back what what you're saying, like like obviously, First Blood is the one that first popped into my head yeah. when you said that as well as is like the pop cinema, first and and well, people dealing kid. with the Vietnam War, yeah.
0: Well, and even guys, like, you know, like Stone making his movies from Platoon on. But, I mean, for our uh, generation, like, we had the duology of JFK and Nixon, you right. know, to where that that we, on like a big scale, were watching these on these, these huge uh, budgeted, almost like melodramas and uh, – our pop cinema was kind of reckoning with what the Vietnam War meant. And I always wondered if that was going to ever, I guess, psychically bleed into the next generation of filmmaking. And it has like a little bit, but your, your movie was one where I was like, well, here's this, you know what? $20 million.
1: (laughs) No, it's not 20 million. million And you, you, you saying that in that review has made Wikipedia say that it's the $20 million budget movie. And I've tried to change it, and they're like, no, I'm sorry, this reviewer said it was $20 million, so so it, it's a $20 million movie. It was $14 million. It was originally, like, 12, million, but uh, we went over budget and post, so it was $14 million. I,
0: I kind of find it hilarious that my stupid review trumps the director. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They're
1: like, fuck off. Fuck off. This, is, this review is, is sacrosanct. Um but yeah, sorry, sorry, not to, not to, derail no, it's, just, it's,
0: it's just, I, I it, it's something that's, um, I've wondered for like a while. And I mean, even now, you know, with like, uh, Tarantino making movies now that are reckoning with like the, the, the late sixties and Manson and everything and, and us having to live through, uh, arguably the most corrupt, uh, kind of American administration since Nixon um, i just i am just it's a it's something that's weighed on my mind recently to where i've been like are we the generation that 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 first reckoned with
1: it on like a massive scale I think so i think i think like um you know like you, you mentioned stone like born on the 4th of july i remember yeah. watching that with my brother and my my dad had bad asthma. So he never went to Vietnam War, but his best friend did. And he just happened to stop by the house while we're watching the movie. And and he's, you know, a a Republican veteran who hates Oliver Stone. And he comes in there and he's just kind of got like he this is the type of guy who every place he shows up, he brings his own beer. So he's already got his like six packs with him, which is, you know, very respected in this house. But uh, you know, he doesn't doesn't assume you're gonna have his his brand and that's all he's fucking drinking. So but he shows up and he's got like his six pack under his wing. And he's like, what are you boys watching? And we're just like, fuck. And it's the scene where Tom Cruise um confesses to the family of the soldier of the friendly fire. And I'd never seen a reaction like that from an, another person to a movie. He just he just started screaming at the screen, don't say it, don't say it. Damn it. And just fucking cursing out Oliver Stone. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't think, you know, uh, 30 years from now, a kid watching that movie is going to have the same experience. I think that's that's something that you kind of can only happen in the window where we exist.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it's a bit of a tangent, but it was just something that I even thought about while watching. Uh, your movie again last night but um which,
1: which is hilarious because you know we we are we do have just uh you know tentacles ripping people's brains out and um babies sure. growing overnight sure so, but, but i love it
0: verhoven also had you know robot cops patrolling detroit and uh, brain-sucking mutant monsters, you know, killing soap opera stars. And, like, sometimes some of the greatest uh, or most subversive political statements come from the silliest movies, or at least the silliest premises on paper.
1: Fair point, fair point. Like, like um, the, the character of Kanye's death was um, just straight up reading about the fact that there's still so many munitions in Vietnam and Laos that, you know, killed children every year and it's yeah. still such an ongoing problem and when you actually read about the amount of bombs that were dropped on this country and you in in and, and i did get the chance to visit laos while i was over there filming we had a christmas break and um my sister-in-law was was living there at the time so we went and visited and it's a beautiful little country but it's just such a bizarre thing to think about america being threatened by that uh strip of land um it's just it's just such incredible bullshit uh the same thing like when i remember watching restrepo you know about the afghanistan war and it was just like why the fuck are we fighting over these mountains this is so fucking stupid monumentally stupid on on such a kind of simple human level that it, it it kind of drops your mouth when you just think about you know the, the certain guys that you got to know on that die for some fucking, you know, Rock Hill in Afghanistan. It just it's just such a failure of humanity on some level that it, it, it it's it's so depressing. And when in it, I think in the hindsight of, of the Vietnam War of just how manipulative and that everyone knew that this was bullshit and they still went ahead, full steam ahead on everything and all the atrocities and all of the, the lives destroyed is just kind of it's numbing.
0: Did you uh I swear we'll get off of Vietnam event. No, no, but
1: we, we, <laughs> we can we can say but I was going to say that 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 scene where she she blew up um like yeah like my my sister-in-law she would give us you know like they they make spoons made out of the unexploded ordinances and stuff. And so when I saw the Five Bloods on Netflix, well, that was actually true. I loved that.
0: Next. Yeah. Oh great. Yeah. But go, go
1: on. But yeah, it was. It made me really happy. I mean, I I fucking love that movie, and I love Delroy Lindo in it. But it w- it just made me really happy that they were calling attention to a lot of that stuff that was, like you said, it's it's seated in this um, fairly preposterous um, sci-fi monster mash. Um, but they they were kind of you know addressing all of that head on, and and I, I really I was really happy to see it.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's like you you just bring up the the Five Bloods, and it's like there's Spike Lee basically making his uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, which you know is uh, ostensibly about you know this troop of guys who you know return back to Vietnam after you know serving and then going on with the rest of their lives, but never really being able to shake off that conflict and what they saw while they were over there together. Um, and to go back for this kind of this gold, which, you know, on its on its nose is, you know, it's a Humphrey Bogart movie. It's literally oh. a Humphrey Bogart movie. But, um, you know, then he's uh, inserting all of this uh, commentary, you know, right down to like you bring up the spoons. But like there is that whole subplot um, about the anti mine. Uh, demonstrators and like the, the who go over there to uh, uh, try and almost like
1: de yeah, they them all they blow, up, they blow them up um, yeah and it, it, it's just still happening and we're talking you know 40 years ago it's yeah crazy.
0: and it becomes such a great metaphor for like who these guys are is that they're literally all these walking bombs that just have they could go off at any moment and in Delroy you know Lindo's case does go off Yes. Uh, and god if we when he pulls have- when he pulls the
1: sun the sun on the mind scene was was one of my favorite scenes I've seen in a, in a while it yeah. really, really got me Um uh,
0: it's a it's quite a movie
1: uh, <laughs> and I and I and I will say I I was very happy um it this it goes to something with making visual effects movies and I could go on a, a really long tangent about it but uh, it requires a lot of imagination in the post process, and you know if you're if you're making something like The Rise of Skywalker, you know I listen to some of the podcasts about the filmmakers on on those movies, like the amount of post production teams they have, so that when they're doing screenings, they have if if not the best pre ever done, like really good post viz for every single shot, um, you know really great temp sound, really great temp music. I mean that 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 takes away a lot of the imagination that you would need to like show someone else but I don't have that infrastructure I don't have that money so when I'm cutting these movies and I'm showing it to producers and I'm I'm showing it to financiers it's very difficult because in in a lot of cases we don't have any previs like Beyond Skyline had the most minimal previs of any movie with that many visual effect shots probably ever made um Skylines we had a little bit more um but less Storyboarding, so it was, it, it was each each situation. It, it's always been a challenge to like get things ready to to screen to people. But so so for me, I, I just feel like there's like that part of my brain that I can turn on. So when I saw that they weren't gonna do the CG de aging, I was so into it because all you're doing when they do that is you're staring at the guy's face and you go, oh that one's pretty good. Ooh, that uh, you know the blacks are a little lifted on that one. You know, like you're just to be like basically in vfx review the whole time instead of just getting immersed in the story and in the emotion of those scenes so i i was i i love vfx de-aging uh you know when it's used for the right things and i think it's a great tool but i actually think in that circumstance um i know he said it was a spike said it was a budget thing but i think it was the right creative decision too
0: yeah it it felt like something it felt like a great decision that you know May as he claims uh, had been born out of necessity but you end up watching it and it it plays a nice uh, little th- kind of thematic role with the movie too is that you know the whole idea of like these guys never stopped being those people who were in that war
1: For uh, sure and, and and what are you what are you going to do recast them no way it, no. it just totally it totally after the first decision to do it, you're like, okay, all right. I, I see what you're doing here, and, and I never even really thought about it again. So when I saw people complaining about it at the end, I was just like, your imagination's broken. You need to go get your shit fixed. Like, well,
0: and you know, also like your your capacity for, for – and I don't want to insult anybody, but there's there's also some, some critical thinking involved there too to where you, you watch it because you watch these guys who are all in you know, their 60s essentially – um, but then they're playing against uh, Chadwick Boseman, who you could make the argument that the entire reason that, you know, he's in it, he's playing his uh, a, a younger man against these old these older actors is that, you know, he never got to age. Exactly. Point. And it's like yeah was if this creative decision was born out of necessity it actually it it allows your brain to engage with that idea of like this is who this guy this guy was always the shining god to them who never left vietnam where no. you know they, they grew old
1: and i think that that says something about growing old um not that i'm ancient but i feel older than i, than I, I when i Think of my memories. I don't think of myself as being 21 when right. I remember the memories. I don't remember what my face looked at like at 21 until someone shows me a picture. and I go, oh, my God. And I kind of think of myself as I am in those moments. So I thought that was kind of an interesting you know, way to think about memory in itself.
0: Yeah, I never thought about it that way. That's that's a good point. Um, because God, I can't even remember what I looked like. what it would like if you didn't give me a photograph of myself as a right. child, I don't think I would remember out like offhand no. what I actually did.
1: We're on a fixed camera, and so we just, you know, think if the memory goes back, we're kind of seeing it from the the body that we're in now. So yeah. I don't know. Again, all a bud probably all a budget thing, but it really got me thinking about a couple of different, you know, things that that I you know, otherwise we'd just be talking about the quality of the the de-aging.
0: Yeah, we'd be having the Irishman discussion. Exactly. Which I mean, I really love that movie. But yeah, too. there's some wonky faces in that.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. It's 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 incredibly difficult process to do. And uh, for that amount of shots, it, it's it's uh it's it's definitely a grind. And I could see, you know, that 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 I'm trying to be diplomatic on it, but it is just—it's like when you're when you're looking at those faces, like it's months of seeing that back yeah. and back and back, and people trying, and everyone going, "Oh, that that one looks bad," and it's like, well, it's probably version 42. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ones before, you know, are really hard. It—it's just a very hard thing to do to make a man that age, um. As young as they were trying to make them and stuff, but it, it again m- m- didn't didn't bother me because, you know, you kind of you have to. I don't know. I feel like for certain people don't know how to watch movies anymore. Yeah. So, what surre- what other... Surrender. to it. That's yeah. The movie.
0: Yeah, you you give yourself over to it, and it's also the whole idea. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, again, not to go too far off on a tangent, but like, um it's the same idea as like when when Hugo first came out and, you know, it was during the, the huge like 3d boom. Um, sure. And it was like, you had all of these shitty three, three D movies, which, you know, the majority of the time they were shitty because they were, they were never shot to be in 3d. They were basically right. post-converted and then you watch them and you're like, I don't get, I don't get the point of, watching this movie in 3d like why are we doing this but then you watch an old master like scorsese be like oh we can do this that okay well i'm gonna just play with this technology as much as possible and like that's what the Irishman feels like to a certain degree only <laughs> it definitely helps when you have uh, Netflix's un- unlimited bankroll where he's like, yeah, I'll just perfect this forever. Like there was a time where I was like, is the Irishman ever going to fucking come out? Like, or is he yeah. just tweak these effects until the end of time?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It like I said, it's a grinding process. I'm sure. I'm sure with that many shots, it was, it, 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 it was that circumstance, but yeah, I mean, I, again, did did the movie – I mean I just remember it was – I think it came out on Thanksgiving, right? Yes. And it was like we we had had some people over and had a lot of drinks and it was like, oh, let's just put it on. And then like the room goes silent for 15 minutes. Then you look around and you're like, oh my god, this is like a, a real movie just started. <laughs> you know, where it's like everyone else would be chatting through everything. But as soon as, as, soon as like you said, a master kind of it, – it's just different. It's just different yeah. when when you get to watch something from him. So uh, I'm I'm down for whatever he's gonna gonna make.
0: Yeah, he's gonna use Apple's unlimited uh, budget next to make I mean, as
1: he should. Yeah, as he should.
0: So, but to transition quickly, uh, speaking of masters, there we go, <laughs> nailed it. Um, you know, one of the the kind of big things with these interviews that we want to do is have you guys uh, pick a movie that was kind of like a quote unquote secret handshake film for you or a formative film for you. And uh, I'm going to let you, you've already told me what it is and I'm excited to talk about it with you because I love this movie to death. Um, But why don't you set it up? What is your pick? Because I guess uh, for folks at home, you know, this is last dragon week. Um, we're talking about basically outside of the box martial arts movies with uh, beyond Skyline and Liam has picked
1: big trouble in little China which yeah. not to be too obvious but uh, it just was the the first one when I when I heard the secret handshake conceit that mm-hmm. that popped into my mind because it was pretty much the first sleepover slumber birthday party I ever got to go to probably I think in in second grade. And we watched Big Trouble in Little China on VHS, and it kind of it blew everyone's brains out. Like the dad kept coming downstairs to telling us to to go to bed and be quiet and like screaming at us because everyone was just you know uh, fighting each other for the next three hours. Um. So yeah, I to me it was it, when and then after I I emailed you and and was thinking about it, I was like, it's probably the first martial arts movie I ever saw, which is so funny because you know they're they're obviously kind of you know carpenter and the writers they're 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 doing homages to the martial arts movies that they grew up loving and they're kind of playing with all this iconography but it was like i was saying earlier if you see that at like 8 or 9 years old it's f- so potent you know it it really kind of like uh it, it burned into the gray matter as like you know this was maybe the coolest movie that i'd ever seen it I, still might be
0: yeah, I I think what's in, uh, one of the things that I've always been so interested by uh, Big Trouble in Little China is the fact that I think it might be Carpenter's lightest movie, like in terms of like just like there's so much humor and there's so much almost like slapstick, especially with Kurt Russell's prefer- performances, as uh, Jack Burton and like the Pork Chop Express and – um, all of the the goofy monsters and everything like yet yeah, as you just said like if you're at a sleepover in second third grade helped <laughs> it, even older like um it's it, that's the the coolest fucking movie that you've ever seen um and also like kurt russell of all of his collaborations with carpenter like this might honestly be the best performance. I know the thing is often brought up as like the most iconic, but this is the one where like Kurt Russell gets to be a total goofball.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is probably the most quoted one in in my lifetime of, of, you know, the old, you know, Jack Burton always says at a time like this and, and, and things like that, like that, that's where I see it as that, that secret handshake sort of vibe. It's like, Um, the thing like is, is definitely probably the best pure performance, but I don't know. He's so funny, you know, when he comes in as the, as the, the nerd going into the, the brothel, I mean, he's hilarious. And and he's also kind of like this eighties ideal in the movie. It's it, it, I tie it into it. There there's definitely, you know, cause at the time it was like these huge, huge dudes like Schwarzenegger and Stallone that were super ripped. And he looked like a normal guy who was, like, just better than everybody. But he wasn't in the gym every single day. But, you know, he could hold his own. He was kind of just, like, the perfect action hero, I think, almost, like, you know, for any movie. And I I definitely think he's the template for, like, the entire Marvel thing, especially. And I, I think they kind of did – they kind of gave a wink to this in Guardians, too. But I think the Guardians movies are, like – you know, such a successor to, to big trouble to me.
0: Yeah. That, that 100% checks out. And as you even said, like having him like cast in, in that second movie.
1: Yeah. As the father, it's like, come on. But it is, it, it it also, because like you were saying, it's like, they, it's self-referentially iconic. Like they're, they're like saying Jack Burton is an iconic character from the fucking first frame of the movie. And that's yeah. like that, that confidence that I've never had. And it's something I've been trying to embrace a little bit more and be like, OK, if I'm really trying to build a mythology here and have this kind of little weird series to myself, I kind of have to make certain things larger than life and, and be a little bit more like outwardly confident about certain things. Like humor is is definitely not like, oh, I I can just, you know, be a cut up in, the, in this situation. But you kind of have to build in more. I noticed that as like an issue with the, with beyond skyline is that like, I wanted it to be funnier than it was. I, I thought it was funnier than it was. And I feel like only certain people get where my humor was coming from, even in serious moments. Um, and I feel like that was kind of part of the reason why I added the blooper reel at the end. It just to tell people know, like, I know this comes across as really serious in places, but like we're fucking cracking up the whole time making it because, it's just inherently hysterical to me to have um Frank Grillo like holding a baby and and talking to an alien on a spaceship. Like the, it like it, it was hard to you know, hide the smile on my face from behind the monitors. So there's a lot of that movie that i I feel like I still have a lot to learn from and and aspire to because I feel like that balance, like you're saying, being able to to get those laughs and to have a lighter touch within this martial arts mayhem i mean there's still some pretty intense stuff i remember like the you know the 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 dead bodies when um when they first go into the water and stuff like that like as a kid that was like oh this is they're they're not playing games here but it is just a a hell of a ride all the way through
0: yeah well and it's carpenter you know he can't it's almost like he can't help himself it's like i'm gonna make this light-hearted shaw brothers riff but at the same time there's gonna be monsters with exploding heads and like dead bodies everywhere and yeah. dead, like this like Chinese man, basically aging beyond belief and becoming a sorcerer. Like it's just easy. He's losing his mind the entire time and, <laughs> and we're all the better for it. But at the same time, it's it's one of the things that it's also interesting about it is that it, you kind of brought it up is that like Kurt Russell is the ideal. I mean, if you're born with a jaw like that, like you're kind of set up for life. Like, yeah. what you're going to do.
1: Have you ever seen Kurt Russell with bad hair? It's a trick not. question because it's never happened. Like yeah. no matter what the hair is, you're like god damn it, I should I should try to pull that look off and you will not succeed. But yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing the uh, the hateful eight behind the scene photos and I was like, man, look at that hair.
0: Yeah. And then he fucked everybody up with a mustache that was unbeatable. And you were like, huh, well, I just can't compete with this like ideal human being. <laughs> <laughs> but um to your point is that like and and to kind of bring back Schwarzenegger and, and, and the era in which it was it was released is that you are in the middle of of the let's say eighties oiled uh, action hero boom, you know, with everybody from Schwarzenegger to Stallone to like Jean-Claude's not quite on the scene yet, um, right. but he's, you know, still a couple years out, but like, you know, he's kind of almost like the, the end of the cycle. Yeah. Uh, I think that's there.
1: Like, Universal he, soldier.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we did a hard target a couple weeks back. And that was, we, we kind of went in depth oh, yeah. with like, uh, where does this rank? And, and also like uh, the, the different stages of, of Jean-Claude Van Damme. But, um, what's interesting is that, uh, Kurt Russell's kind of smack dab in the middle of this. And he's playing the guy who you would assume is the hero. That's the most clever part of the movie to me. Every time I watch it, and he's really the buffoon where like the sidekick he's the one who saves the day and it's it's the old play on like how you know the green hornet became the kato show right um and i always found that like awesome because again it it's it's you know john carpenter one of our great not only directors but just film brats um, kind of acknowledging that he knows his history and he knows like how these heroes work and that you know in the middle of this kind of 80s cycle of action movies he's gonna kind of take the piss out of them a little bit
1: yeah and i and i think that is a, a a really cool point about like you know wang is probably one of the cooler asian characters that i can remember from that decade growing up i mean they're they're, they're usually played for laughs in a lot of movies that are embarrassing now. Um, but they never, you know, there, there's definitely moments of, uh, of humor um, that go back and forth and that it's, you know, uh, it's from its time. But he's he's played as the real hero, like you said. He kicks ass. And in the fights at the end, like flying through the air, I remember I'd never seen anything like that. It was like, oh, th- there, this is like a fully aerial Battle where these guys are running and jumping off the wall and flying towards each other. And uh, and Wang totally is, is, uh, is the hero of that entire kind of climax.
0: I think it's also the thing that is – like you just brought up like how certain things are from its time. And yet like I don't think that you could – like I know that they kicked around A Big Trouble in Little China Remake. For a while there, and even then, you were kind of watching it and being like, eh, "I don't know, guys." Like the yeah, cl- I, it might have changed. <laughs>
1: for sure, for sure. I mean, I I feel like I, I know the Rock was uh, was attached and yeah, and they, they wanted to do it. It just never seemed to make sense to do a remake instead of a, a sequel in some way. I mean, I it's again, Kurt Russell still is looks great. He's still badass. He can still throw his fastball uh, if you're going to do something like that it just uh, you uh, obviously it would be some sort of weird legacy sequel but I'd still rather see that than just you know um, a reheated kind of by the numbers attempt at at doing the same movie I, I just don't I don't have any interest in that
0: yeah but it's also I think that where I was kind of going with it too is that I think the thing that saved this movie from a million. Uh, quote unquote problematic think pieces like tearing it apart on like anniversaries is that the f- the fact that Carpenter was smart enough to look at it and be like, well the white guy's the asshole like and... <laughs> yeah like, all these uh, all the Asian dudes they're the coolest part so it's right. like, yeah there's some humor that you wa- you watch and you kind of like that's ah, a little cringy but like sure. at the same time you know it it remains funny and it remains like um at its core
1: at at its core like what yeah like what you're saying with the filmmaker's intent and where their heart is is in the right place so any of those little things on the side i think you can kind of you know take it with a grain of salt but i think it's one of those movies where you kind of are like oh at their core they just think those people are stupid that you kind of yeah you know you can't those aren't going to age
0: we're like carpenter clearly reveres Uh, the movies that he's he's paying homage to um, all those old kung fu movies and stuff is that to him they're not goofy like they're just another cornerstone in in what uh you know any cinephile should use when they're they're kind of building their own canon right Uh, so um where uh to kind of send this off on a very difficult question um where does this rank in Carpenter's filmography for you. Yeah. See dead air.
1: (laughs) Well, it might, I, it might be favorite of his. It's probably the one I've watched the most. I did just watch the thing again. Um, for this other project that I'm developing, that's a, uh, an Arctic-based sort of um, survival adventure. So of course you have to rewatch the thing um, when when you're we're working on something like that, and it it remains incredible. And I and I watched the it's on YouTube actually. If you don't have the Blu-ray, the the, the like hour and a half documentary on the making of it. Um, so I'm I'm not saying it's it's better than the thing, but it's like I said, it's it's my most comfort food rewatch. I think of any. Carpenter. I I, I love uh, Escape from New York. Um, I you know uh, every every once in a while I, I can go back and and watch Escape from, from L A for fun, but that's not cracking the top five. Um,
0: I don't think that one's cracking the top ten, man. No, I actually no. like, really like Escape from L A, but it's one of those movies that I feel like
1: the soundtrack cracks the top ten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was formative, <laughs> but um but for sure yeah i mean um uh i i'm 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 drawing a blank at the moment um but definitely i mean they live is definitely uh one of those other ones that i think fits perfectly within the secret handshake type of movie Yeah. because i think it's definitely it's one of those things that if you saw it at a certain age it was so subversive and also you know, delivered action that you didn't normally get in a movie. I mean, it's become kind of this almost uh trope to have a, they live type of fight. And that was something that we even referenced, um, originally with the Frank and eco fight, because the fight was like twice as long. And, uh, it, it was an interesting problem. Like, like you said, when, when you start working with these fight choreographers that you revere and, and respect as much as I did, uh, for Eco and, and Yayan and, and their whole team, very talented guys, uh, I could not tell them no to anything. And in fact, I would just actively try to add more fights to the movie a- any moment I had them on set. So like that original uh, scene where Eco uh, fights um, very in the alleyway, that, that was not in the movie the day before we shot it. I was like, you think you guys can do another fight here? We actually have yeah. like half half a day. And they were like, oh, absolutely. So I was just kind of, and and I had to fight really hard to keep that in the movie because you can kind of naturally see in the edit how it would probably be cleaner without it. But I was like, you know, what are we doing here? We have Eco stabbing someone in the neck, and I'm in a motorcycle helmet, and I'm cutting it out of the movie. I I don't, I I don't know what you guys signed on for, but that, you know, I'm sneaking this back in.
0: That part is fucking awesome. Because all of a sudden you just have this hardcore R-rated like violence like breaking out. And you're like, again, it's the escalation of the movie is that I just sat there. And like when that moment happened, I was like, well, naturally, this is this had to be there, right?
1: Yeah, (laughs) the the, the opening night in Sitges, you know, the the audience reaction to that throat stab, I I felt very, very happy that I kept it in. But um, but yeah, okay give me your top five Carpenter
0: um Halloween like that'll always be number one because for a very similar reason that you're you're saying um that big trouble is is probably yours is that there is a nostalgia element to it like Halloween is the movie that made me fall in love with movies from like a very very young age like 10 or 11 um kind of similar scenario it wasn't a sleepover it was like a uh my neighborhood growing up um in Pennsylvania uh they they used to have these uh, like neighborhood dinners to where like you know all the adults like at one house would host like appetizers and then another house would host like the main course and then you know another house would would host like after dinner drinks and my parents always hosted the after dinner drinks um awesome. and they would put me in uh, you know, their bedroom with like a bowl of popcorn and either some tapes or like you know TV, like public access TV or something. And I just remember flipping through the channels during one of these party nights, and here's you know I landed right on the the opening scene of of Halloween, the credits with the the fucking pumpkin and the the synth music and you know from that point forward of, of watching Michael Myers, you know, murder his sister. Uh, I was like, holy shit. What is hap- like, What the fuck am I watching? Like,
1: yeah, see, I, it disturbed me too much as a kid. That's why it, it's one of those that it's like, I, I love the movie, but it's not like a favorite rewatch. Cause like, I remember that moment and being like shuddering when, you know, when they, they, they revealed that it was the, the, the younger brother. Michael and just being like, ah, oh, it, it, it disturbed me on, on a deep level. Um, which was, you know, which is exactly what it was it was meant to do. It's obviously a classic, but that's why it's like some of us are some of them are so mean. You know, like like a assault on precinct 13, in the beginning, where they just murder the the child in the street.
0: Oh my We're God! Like, <laughs> Shoot that the ice cream shooting is just heinous. Like I didn't I, like I came to that movie later on videotape like Say, a couple years after that. What?
1: I, I came to that one later too, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, "Wait, what? This is the you know because he he had gotten you know so so much lighter in the later movies, but those early ones are mean.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean even Escape from New York's pretty mean. It yeah. is pretty. But that like I think that's my number two uh, for him because I did I don't have the math in front of me, but I think escape from New York is the movie I've watched the most in my life. Um, it's just one of those things to where, like, I don't know. I think everybody has a movie kind of like this to where you're, you're like, I can't decide what to watch. Why don't I just put on escape from New York for the 71st time or whatever?
1: Uh, I was like, like that, I think that's big trouble for me. It'd be like, I'm hungover. I'm going to yeah. put on big trouble in little China and uh and everyone's going to be really happy about it. Um no matter who you're with. Uh, but yeah, escape from New York it's definitely like yeah, that opening, you know, 10 minutes gets you in every single time. Yeah. And I love it's definitely kind of the approach that that we're we're trying to do, you know, like if you if you were to actually budget that movie and shoot it now, like what is the budget? It's not insane. Um, but everyone now tries to do action movies that are either on this like really, really small scale, um, or, you know, $200 million. And so I'm always trying to stretch my brain to think about how to get these things in, in like, like even when I watched the first star Wars, I, in my brain, when I budgeted that movie, it's a $40 million movie. It's not in, in modern terms. Like I think you could make a shot for shot remake of that for 40 million dollars right now. Yeah. Uh but like so so why so if you're trying to make these action movies for like where where, where I am at which is like this, you know, 10 to 15 range, I just try to think of like it, it it's more advantageous to go back and watch Star Wars, go watch Escape from New York, go watch Big Trouble in China and think see how they did the action and how they did the sets and how they transitioned from the location to the set and, and kind of to, to emulate that than to watch, you know, a modern action movie now because they're just using so much CG and in invisible places that you're, you're, you wouldn't really notice to create such a massive sort of um, production value feel. And so it, it kind of, uh yeah, that, that's just kind of the, the, the lessons that I take when I try to look at movies like that. Uh, I just think, it's so it's done so clever, you know, on, on everything, and it still feels really, really big because of the idea and in uh, the execution.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's kind of like how um, uh, I think one of the guys who who's doing it really, really well right now is is Lee uh, Wanell, uh, yeah. making stuff like. Um, even upgrade and uh, you know uh, the invisible,
1: invisible man yeah.
0: are both in- incredible, and now like he's gonna make the Wolfman with fucking Ryan Gosling, and you're like, sure, whatever, I'll sign up for it because you know so much of his stuff is made on a shoestring budget and is practical, and then he's just filling in the seams uh, with the CG where he needs you know basically that that big moment, um, but it's it's all about talent at a certain point and it's all about a guy who recognizes just the very, the, the, the basic fundamentals of like how to shoot and block a scene. Um, and he's real fucking good at it.
1: Uh, yeah, he is. He is. And I, and he also has a lot more restraint than I do. And that <laughs> I think that's what I was, uh, trying to, uh, work on in, uh, in, in, in part three in certain ways was that like to, to temp, not necessarily temper the ambition, but like you have to pick your spots and, uh, and figure out, you know, where you're going to blow out and spend money on something and, and not just kind of try to try to spread yourself so thin. Um, and so I tried to shoot a lot less green screen, um, in, 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 in part three than, than parts two. And, uh, I really kind of got hamstrung by it because, We had this big, huge thing where we called it the silo set, where they're kind of hanging upside down and Frank tries to go up and rescue his son. That whole set piece was supposed to be practically built in Indonesia, and we just couldn't get the equipment sent there, like the rock and roll trusses, that you would need to make it safe. And so we kind of had half a set that we were inheriting from an older movie that we were going to retrofit and film a lot of that practically, which would have been insanely challenging but also a a shit ton of fun so it ended up having to shoot that later in LA as a green screen set which was still super challenging we had like a green screen cylinder but it was one of those situations where it was like having gone through it now if I had been in that situation I probably would have rewritten it and tried to do something completely different and not go into being like okay I'm just going to add you know 500 green screen shots to the movie that weren't originally going to be there. And and so that's really like when I said it was a a two-and-a-half-year odyssey. That was one of the big parts of it.
0: Now, I do want to add, before we kind of wrap this up, I do want to ask you one question. Um, It will require a somewhat diplomatic answer. (laughs) Okay. Um, So you've worked with Eco, and one of the things I've found – Um, I found frustrating about his uh, attempt at transitioning to American movies with stuff like Peter Berg's, uh, the one movie he was in with fucking Mark Wahlberg that sucked. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but then he was also in a movie that I liked, um, Stuber with, with Dave Bautista and, and Kumail. Um, but the one thing that I think even unites them between a movie I didn't like and a movie I did like is that nobody has figured out how to shoot his fight scenes in America and, uh, your movie did. And I just wondered, what is the key to delivering, um, like very clear action from a fighter who is that skilled?
1: Uh, that's a great question. You know, um, the diplomatic answer is to me from, I think it, I think it comes from where I came from to him as such a fan is that to me, he's an iconic screen, you know, presence. And I think certain people that maybe, you know, didn't organically discover the raid movies or, or, or that, you know, he's kind of, Ends up on a cast list or something. I think that's just a different thing. Whereas mm-hmm. to me, I'm like, this guy's a fucking martial arts god. You know, he is our modern Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan. And he's actually more Jackie Chan, and I would love to see him in something like we said lighter, like a uh, because he is so naturally funny and innocent in a way. Like when you when you hang out with him, he's he's got a real Uh, Like, I I think kids should be able to watch an Eco Wise movie and fall in love with him, too. Uh, Yeah. So you want the
0: kids version of The Night Comes for Us?
1: Well, not that. But like like something like, you know, interestingly enough, it was like uh, when I, I first saw him fight in the gym, I was like, why is this guy not in Star Wars? And so this is 2014. I didn't know he'd already filmed a cameo in Star Wars. Yeah. And I literally turned to my producer and I was like, why isn't he in Star Wars? Why are they going to hire like some like, you know, thespian guy to do some fight scenes? Like this guy should have fucking dual dagger lightsabers and be like tearing a buzzsaw through that universe. And it was pretty disappointing that, you know, that that that's not what they saw him as. Whereas sure. to me, I I just – I like I said, I just had such a reverence for him as a – not just a fighter and, and and not just an actor, but like a literal iconic screen presence. That was like why I, I wanted to hold his face covered with the, the helmet closed and have it come up at like a moment because I felt like he deserved that. So I think that's probably uh more than the action what you're kind of vibing on Beyond Skyline is just that like – as a filmmaker, I fucking love this guy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a real true fan. He's not someone I grew up with. He's not, um, he's not someone that that I just, you know, it was like, oh, that he would be good for this role. It was like when I got him, it was like, it was like a, a gift from God, from the movie gods to me. And I tried to treat it that way. Um, but from the action standpoint, I. I didn't know what I was doing, you know. Like I, I was really lucky to have uh, Christopher Probst as, as a DP, um, who's worked with Joseph Kahn a lot, and so he he knows so much about blocking and and camera movement and camera as a character. And so I learned so much from him. But there was actually kind of an interesting thing in that is that like working in with other second units or stunt crews. Is that a lot of times they kind of will film an animatic and give you an animatic with like the actual camera moves and ideas baked in. It's a lot like previs, you know, when when CG guys do it. You can talk about it beforehand, but they'll do a lot of it because, but because we met them, you know, and they only had a month of prep for Beyond Skyline. They just kind of gave us animatics from like a, a very wide angle, and it was just sort of a you know a master shot. Of, of them fighting. So it didn't have a lot of cuts kind of baked in. So we tried to just kind of cover it as, as wide and, and then move in on details, but it wasn't super like pre-cut, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, whereas like sometimes you kind of would be like pre planned the insert of like, okay, we're, and then we're going to cut to, you know, the foot pushing back and gripping the floor there. And then we'll come up to this here and, and kind of shoot it bit by bit which uh we we did for some of the fights in part three but um i think just from from the circumstances of the way we shot it we had to kind of stay wide and kind of move Now, i'd say my criticism of the action for me is that i felt like i was too kind of medium lensed a lot and i i would go wider on some of the stuff and and i would um you know try to get more of him in it overall but uh, i well, i'm still pretty happy with 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 how everything turned out, and um i i I just really love his performance in the movie,
0: yeah, no, he's great um but it's just the you you saying like using like uh, medium lenses and even like wider coverage and stuff it it reminds me, and then also bringing up the insert stuff it reminds me of I, I talked to um chad uh Stileski. Um, whose name I'm probably butchering as well. Uh, after John Wick 2, and one of the things that he said to me is that he said if you ever see shaky cam or inserts, it's because they didn't get enough good coverage. Is that it, it's a way for them to essentially cover up the fact that they didn't capture the fighters moving within the frame as much as they should have. Um, and that was his kind of one big, I guess, editing tip or, or, or photography tip for uh, action choreography Mm -hmm. that he was always like high and wide. That's what you do. And you just, as you kind of said, like it's the respect since those guys come from, you know, stunt coordinating and even stunt performers first is that there's, it's almost like the old Hal Needham, um, school of like the reason that stunts are awesome is when you see them, like you you realize like that dude is doing it for real in the frame. Um,
1: for, for sure, and um, to the Chad thing, uh, I haven't met him, but um, uh, Daniel Bernhardt, who's in uh Skyline's, is a is a old friend of his, and who was obviously in in John Wick one as uh as one of the villains, and he's actually a couple of the different characters who get killed in the SWAT raid in, in part 3 as well. Uh, and so he he would talk to me a lot about Chad and his approach to stuff and our um our second unit action choreographers for for Skylines are, are our guys that have worked with Chad at 8711 uh, uh Jean Aiden is actually uh Keanu's stunt double in The Matrix 4 and he so he shot uh, the second unit for us. And so that that was a lot of that sort of um that school um, for part three and, and, and when they would, you know, come up with the fights, it was all very much like uh, a lot of cameras baked in and different styles, which, you know, we could then, you know, work from. Um, But there was still, there's still definitely, I mean, even some of your favorite, like you said, it's, I don't think it's necessarily that the insert is always there to cover things up because I do think like some of the like crouching tiger and stuff, it, it sometimes is just the foot, getting a grip on the floor and i I, and those are the things that i didn't do in beyond because i was so kind of like holding on for dear life and um and i think frank just looks really great in a medium lens because he's kind of a boxer you know you don't really want to see the boxer's legs that much you kind of want to like have his his shoulders and arms kind of taking up the length of the frame and his head and, and his body there so he kind of, like, just naturally works uh, on the medium lens. So I'd always kind of feel like I was pu- pushing in and having those swings uh, hit and, and work really well that way, especially in the edit bay. Because we'd had wider stuff, but it just seemed like the energy was always always the best in those kind of medium shots for him. Um, but, yeah, I think that was just... It, it was one of those things where then you, like, you're looking at your fights afterwards and you're, you're thinking about how to get better. And it's just like, yeah, just those little story moments within the fights and to try to um you know bring the emotional and the the effort in i think like what i'm finding that i really respond to and like my favorite thing is when the actor like it's almost like effort porn (laughs) it's like i really just fucking love when the actor really looks like they're they're trying hard and they're they're like you know they're giving their all they're dying in that scene and so I, i tried to do that a lot more because i think that's what frank is is naturally good at it's like that, that authenticity and that he he's always bringing it and he's always giving his all and so I, that was kind of the lesson i was learned i was like i really want to kind of emphasize that so that it's always feels hard
0: all right well <laughs> i mean that's a, there's gonna be a
1: lot of grimacing a lot of grimacing faces in, in part three that's all you have to know
0: i i can't wait like Uh, I mean, I love uh, Beyond Skyline, I can't wait for Skylines. Uh, Liam, gotta tell you, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time and uh, letting us pick your brain about what we believe to be one of the great uh, face melters of the last like 20 (laughs) years. Like, 100% if there's any way that we could ever get this movie, if theaters still exist, uh, one of my great wishes is to see uh, your movie on the big screen, because I, I think that's, if I had any complaint, it was that, you know, the majority of people saw it at home on their TVs, and it's it deserved much, much, much bigger than that. Um, so that
1: is... Good- uh- Far too kind, and I, I very much appreciate it. Hopefully, hey, maybe we can do a double feature at a, at a drive-in or something uh, this this December. That sounds I, like a great idea to me.
0: I will one hundred percent be here. so thank you, sir, and uh, good luck with everything.
1: Thank you, Jacob.